Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already... Get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. Dr. Ronald Grossman lost his first AIDS patient well before anyone knew that we were witnessing the start of a worldwide epidemic. In the 15 years before there were effective HIV-AIDS treatments, he lost hundreds more. Many of those patients were inherited from gay colleagues, friends who turned their medical practices over to him after they too got sick and died of the disease. Dr. Ron, as I call him, has been my personal physician for nearly three decades. We've had many conversations about AIDS during that time, in the context of his work as well as mine. We've even uncovered some surprising points of intersection, like Vito Russo. Vito, who was the author of The Celluloid Closet and a co-founder of ACT UP, was one of the first people I interviewed for my Making Gay History book because I knew he was ill. The physician who tended to Vito in his final years, I later learned, was Dr. Ron. Years ago, Dr. Ron confided that he's kept the files of all his patients who died from complications of AIDS, reams of files locked away in an office closet. Dr. Ron explained that he used those files when he found himself confronted with a patient who was in denial about AIDS. He would unlock the closet door, pull the chart of a 20-something gay man who had died, who had no underlying illnesses, no history of drug use, and say, this is the reality of AIDS. I think of those files every time I visit Dr. Ron's office, imagining the very real people behind all that paper. And I wonder what it must have been like to have known each of those men, to have counseled them, and to have treated their various opportunistic infections, only to see them waste away and die, most of them still in the prime of life. So when we decided to devote a couple of podcast seasons to HIV AIDS, Dr. Ron was one of the people I knew I had to interview to find out what the early years of the AIDS crisis were like for a young doctor trying to save lives on the front lines of a baffling, stigmatized, and devastating disease. So here's the scene. It's the morning of May 17th, 2021, and we're in the middle of another pandemic. COVID infection rates are down for now, so we're able to meet with Dr. Ron in his busy office overlooking noisy Columbus Circle just across from Manhattan Central Park. 
It's an office I know well, from the blood pressure monitor and model skeleton to shelves filled with medical books and a football-sized 3D model of HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Dr. Ron is sitting behind his broad desk near the examining table. He's dressed casually in a brown V-neck sweater over a pressed shirt. And despite his thinning silver hair, looks years younger than he is. Or than I estimate he is. Dr. Ron made clear a long time ago that he's not about to tell me his actual age. We start by talking about Dr. Ron's childhood in Omaha, Nebraska, where his ideas about what it means to be a good doctor first took shape. Let me tell you a quick anecdote. My family doctor was, we were so close to him that as a kid, because he treated me from like 10-ish till adulthood, I thought he was a relative. And, and uh, the pediatrician showed up at my medical school graduation and in the receiving line, he in a very loud voice says to my mother, who's right next to me, you owe me a necktie, meaning me. My mother laughed so hard I thought she would collapse. Apparently, every time he examined me as a well baby, I peed on his necktie. <laughs> now, I tell you those anecdotes because these are the kind of relationships I had as a kid, and I decided I want to emulate that. I want to reproduce that as an adult doctor. What year did you arrive in New York? That's unfair, Eric. <laughs> I came here in 1971, yes. So it's 50 years, not quite to the day. I came to New York chasing a, uh, a boyfriend, okay? Wasn't really my idea to move here, but he was in theater, where else to go, right? When I arrived here, I arrived with no connections whatsoever. And I literally just opened an office. But what I found early on as I began to attract gay patients is that the kind of medical care they were getting was quite honestly rather appalling. For the most part, the doctors who identified themselves as gay and had a lot of gay patients basically acted as STD clinics. There was no depth. Um, that just basics, physical exams and whatever, whatever, were simply not being done. And I said, okay, I'm gay and the clientele is going to be primarily gay, but to treat only STDs, just wrong. Well, the word got out that there was a real doctor in town. I know that sounds egotistical, but I'm fully trained and, you know, was excited to, to do it. Um, we're going to jump way ahead, so I want to focus specifically on, on the AIDS years. When did you first realize that something bad was happening? It is so clear in my mind. Did you know me when we had the office on, on, uh, on 30th Street? Yes. Yeah. Jeffrey, who was my number one guy, who, by the way, uh, uh, is alive and well despite HIV, said, you've got a really sick new patient in waiting room number whatever. I walked in, and what I saw just didn't compute. A very young fellow, a Latino from a um, Central American country, uh, severely wasted, high fever, obviously very weak, and you can guess the rest I'm going to tell you. The mouth was full of thrush, Kaposi's lesions, and I had no idea what they were, 
all over, but that's not the real story. The story was that I had walked him down the hall to that examining room and he could barely walk with a look of pain on his face you can't imagine. And when I examined him, the pain came from gigantic ulcers near his anus, untreated. And what was the rare disease causing this? Herpes. So everything he had was an exaggeration of, not that Kapusi's sarcoma was ever seen before, but anything else that he had, his lung, he was coughing his head off and short of breath. Will it surprise you that he survived possibly three weeks on a respirator at Bellevue? And it raises a very interesting question, and that is, if I saw him, and this is 1980, late 81, right, with that advanced disease, when did he catch it? It's a very rare for HIV disease to move rapidly, right? So it literally pushes back the history of this epidemic with one patient, with one doctor. I'm going to guess anywhere from eight to 10 years, if not more. And you probably know there's plenty of speculation that indeed the disease goes back far, much farther than that. There are all manner of little hints of people with similar diseases that didn't, however, connect as an epidemic. And that was a heck of a way to see the very first case of HIV. By the end of 1981, I had seen at least four or five more patients exactly like that. And needless to say, not one of them still alive. Did you know what you were dealing with with this patient? Had you already read the first? The famous MMWR. The Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Weekly Report, MMWR. The publication of the CDC, right? That was the uh, report of the so-called Los Angeles cluster. I believe it was five gay men, all presenting very similarly to the patient I just described for you, and none of them knowing each other. But they had a connection, right? This apparently very handsome airline steward. That airline steward has been described in the literature as patient zero, but he never was patient zero. The epidemiologist who tracked the other five people, he was the only one that lived outside of Los Angeles. So he was patient O for outside of Los Angeles. And unlike the way the Europeans do it, by putting a line through the O. So the legend became patient zero. That would have been in June of 1981. Right. And when I read it, uh, it described my case, of course, to a T. Around the time when that MMWR came out, Dr. Dan William was another uh, pioneer uh, in HIV care. We sat together and tried to pick apart what's causing this. And he came up with the term I've never heard anyone else use. He said, this is immune overload. Something is damaging the immune system. Now, he was very careful to not say, oh, it's a virus, because there was absolutely zero evidence for that. It would take well into 1982 before there was any kind of consensus that there was an agent, quote, causing this. And that's the opening chapter. What did you think was going on? We just were as certain as certain can be that it had to be a transmissible agent. Whether or not it was aided and abetted by 
such issues as drugs and alcohol and lifestyle wasn't clear. It just had to be. It was just way too random. But eventually there were some telltale blood tests, not the HIV test that hadn't been invented yet, not the viral load. We didn't have a virus to measure, but uh, uh, telltale signs in other blood tests. I'll never forget because I took care of a dentist, wonderful guy, handsome as hell, and he, this particular blood test, which was very simply the test which measures the total protein in the blood. The globulins were always elevated. Why? Now, this becomes a tutorial, but I'll keep it brief. We don't own one immune system. We own two. We own a cellular immune system. It's exactly the target of the HIV virus, right? T cells, etc. And we own a humoral immune system. The humoral immune system are antibodies, and antibodies are all proteins. And so this elevation in the globulin fraction of the protein was a tip-off. The dentist walked in super healthy, routine physical, and his globulins were off the wall. He'd be dead in another year or two. So were you advising your patients not to have sex or to practice a different kind of sex or wear condoms? What did you tell your patients? Of course we told them that. It was also useless. The answer was, please come in for regular testing. Let's catch the syphilis, the gonorrhea, the chlamydia. All we could do is plead, don't add a burden to the already burden that we don't know the name of yet. Why um, was it pointless to tell them to wear condoms or, or, ha or not have sex? Because it didn't work. Very difficult to talk people into safe sex, right? They felt healthy, they looked healthy. What are you gonna do, screen the guy you just met in, the, in a bar, that wasn't going to happen. Were you afraid for yourself? Mm. I would come home at night and examine my own lymph glands to the point where I made my neck sore and to which uh, the then boyfriend pleaded with me, stop doing that. We had no idea. If this disease had been airborne the way flu is, and now with our new virus, we'd probably none of us be alive. Because this was a true pandemic, but it didn't present itself the way the current one does and all the other major respiratory pandemics. So then over a period of years, how many patients did you see who had, who had HIV? Um, you really want to know? Yeah. I don't have an accurate number, but probably in the order of 1,200 to maybe even 1,500. And I based that number on the number of deaths. I actually kept every single chart. Uh, I have more than 500 charts of deceased. I wonder, what was the impact on you? As a, as a, you're, I know you're a doctor, and so you deal with people who are ill, but what was the experience like of having patient after patient die? The deaths that we saw, Eric, were exactly what you'd expect, primarily in hospital, small percentage, much smaller than today, home or hospice. Hospice care was sparse in the early days in, in, in New York. And home required a lot of logistics, right? And yet, I uncovered a chart in which I'm driving Kenny, my 40-year husband, uh, we're driving to the theater. And I said, Kenny, you know I have to make a house call. He says, but his boyfriend said he died earlier today. I said, they're waiting for me to pronounce. So on the way to the theater, 
I'm stopping and making a house call on the Upper East Side to pronounce this fellow dead. They didn't want to call EMS. They wanted the family doc. And then that became at, at least a weekly event to make a house call on someone who had chosen to forego hospital care, which means I signed more death certificates than I ever dreamed of in my life. And by the time AZT came along, I had already lost a hundred or more patients that way. Right now, during this current pandemic, there, uh, there are a lot of people who don't believe that it's really a pandemic and it's hard to persuade them. I remember you telling me that you sometimes showed patients charts of other patients to, to persuade them that this was real. Can you describe that? Including photographs. I mean, we're talking about people who really dug in their heels, right? There are people who felt, you know, that this wasn't just a conspiracy. It was a vast conspiracy, particularly targeting gay men, right? Um, uh, and prostitutes, of course, another marginalized group, and IV drug users, and on and on and on. And how does one, t you know, talk them out of that? Well, part of the V, I would take a chance. A couple patients took one look of a particular patient who begged me to show photographs of him totally nude, totally covered with KS before he died. And I had his permission in writing, right? I still have the pictures. I get teary-eyed just looking at him because he was this beautiful, wonderful guy. I would say this is one way that HIV ends, right? And yes, it convinced a small number of them, but what eventually convinced them, Eric, you can guess, when the boyfriend got it, right? Boyfriend got sick fast, the other one remains asymptomatic. We still have patients like that. What was, how did the, the hospitals treat your patients when you first started seeing patients in the hospital? Um, to this day, Eric, I have an image in my head that I can never get rid of. It's the yellow waste barrels. They look like a very tall uh, oil can, but they were yellow and they were exclusively for all the waste from HIV patients, including the fact that the linens were not laundered. They went into that barrel and got cremated, if you, if you will. That's how frightened hospital staff were. How strange that we've come full circle. That's precisely how hospital staff can catch COVID, right? But back then we weren't sure. So everything from you know gowns to sheets to pads to to whatever got got destroyed. So as you walk down the hall of either in where you were Bellevue, on the floors that were designated for HIV, it was just rows of rows of these yellow barrels. I know it's a trivial little uh, visual. But it, it was a marker because we went from maybe you're on one floor with one barrel by 1983, 84, 85, that there would be dozens. Eventually they would designate entire floors, right? So often I could make a hospital call and see four or five or more patients on one floor. The one that sticks in my mind were the, uh, the boyfriends, they, they weren't husbands in those days in uh, adjacent beds in the same room, so sick that they didn't know their loved one was in the other bed. And basically by that time they were mute, right? They were on every possible life support from oxygen to parenteral nutrition to what have you. And uh, they were just simply two of the most gorgeous guys you'd ever set eyes on in your life, right? 
who would you would never have guessed would be dying in their late 30s if they even got that old and that just became a daily routine eric to walk into one of those hospitals and see that I recently came across a clip from a 1993 episode of the Charlie Rose Talk Show, a roundtable discussion about the efficacy of the controversial AIDS drug, AZT. Dr. Ron was a guest along with the legendary AIDS activist and playwright, Larry Kramer. True to form, Larry showed up spoiling for a fight and laced into Dr. Ron with a range of accusations. Dr. Ron didn't rise to the bait. He patiently explained the science and never lost his cool. He was the thoughtful, engaging, and warm family physician I've always known. Dr. Ron remains in private practice in New York City. Among his patients are many men who are long-term survivors of HIV-AIDS. Thank you to everyone who makes Making Gay History, including story editor Inga Dataya, associate producer Ali Lemer, audio engineer Kathleen Conti, researcher Brian Faree, photo editor Michael Green, and our social media producers, Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Special thanks to our founding editor and producer, Sarah Birmingham, who recorded Dr. Grossman's interview. And thanks as well to our founding production partner, Genoise Berman. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thank you to the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division for their assistance. And thank you to Con Edison for their generous support of our education work. Season 10 of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Calamus Foundation, the Kipper Family Foundation, Christopher Street Financial, Mary Cadigan and Lee Wilson, Brian Christine and Alex White, Mary Lefkarides, and scores of other individual supporters. You can find all our previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature at makinggayhistory.com. And while you're there, Sign up for our newsletter so you know what's coming up next. I'm Eric Marcus. So long, until next time.